Welcome to episode 11 for August 16th of That's a Good Question. I'm Larry Castle. This is Pastor Ken Brown. Thanks for joining us. All right, well, we just completed uh, two episodes on the subject of Christians in politics. And uh, we've gotten some questions from our viewers, and so we're going to take a turn now to consider some of those. And uh, if you'd like to send us a question, by the way, you can send questions by text to us to 97000. Just text us your question. You can also email them at info at cbctrenton.com and uh, let us know what you'd like us to consider, and we'll try to work that into our schedule. Uh, But we received this question uh, recently about the Crusades, both religiously and historically. And uh, it was actually something, Pastor Ken, you pointed out that um, really has a common thread with the politics discussion that we just Mm -hmm. finished. And so uh, we decided we'd take that one up now. And so let me just say before we get into the discussion, uh, for those of you viewers who are getting ready to hit the stop button and go see what's on YouTube, stick with us. Um, this this uh, is going to be very beneficial, uh, a topic that I think you'll find very practical. And, um, you know, you think of history, you think... Uh, boring and what do these people who lived so long ago in the middle ages have to do with my life well so pastor ken can you start us off by maybe talking about why this is a good subject to talk about well you know the underlying motivations that led to the crusades those underlying motivations are still with us and those still affect us namely the crusades had an inordinate focus on temporal matters and that is an inordinate focus on the here and now and that is something that we very easily get caught up in as well that's why i said the politics discussion that we've had the last couple of weeks actually uh, dovetails with this discussion pretty well also because both of them have that in common an inordinate focus on temporal matters now when we say temporal we mean temporary that is concerned with the present life, which of course the Bible teaches over and over again that the present life is is fleeting, it's temporary. And yet it's so easy for us to get caught up in what's happening right now. And so we get distracted from what's most important and what lasts forever. So we'll talk about the Crusades and uh, answer our viewers question, but we also wanna try to see some connections between the Crusades and our present lives. Okay, so we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute, but um, just, you know, I think of my own attitude toward history as I was younger and uh, really failed to see the value of thinking about and talking about history. So you, can you talk about that for a moment as we get started? Yeah, you know, history very much does have uh, great value for us. In fact, three years ago, it's been almost three years ago that we had the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And in uh, memory of that, we had a class that fall, the fall of 2017, on the Protestant Reformation, a whole semester in our community institute. And I wrote this in the notebook for that class. I said, the study of history develops an ability to anticipate trends 
before they occur. And that's because I said, historical events occur in a pendulumatic fashion, a pendulum, you know, back and forth. People tend to behave in reaction to current events. So things are happening one way, we react to take them another way, and then others react to take them, and it goes back, it goes back and forth. And that's why you've heard it said famously, George Santayana said, history has the tendency of repeating itself. But if you have a knowledge of history, and in fact, it is true, observation experience has shown us that history tends to repeat itself, then it allows someone who possesses a working knowledge of history uh, to have a we've been there before perspective on things and then take action as appropriate. And that's why a new generation, every new generation comes along, if they don't have a knowledge of history, they always think the events of their lives are unique. This is the first time this has ever happened. But of course, uh, for the most part, that's not the case. There are things that are unprecedented, but they're highly unusual. Most of the time, sets of circumstances, things that happen have occurred before. And if you have a knowledge of history, then it prepares you for that. You can see the signs of something coming and you can anticipate and you can take appropriate steps. Well, that seems like a pretty huge benefit. You know, when I think about that, um, you know, being able to have that perspective on current events, uh, it begs the question, why don't we study history more than, especially those of us who look at history as his story, we see this as God unfolding uh, the events of history. Well, you know, it's a sad fact that in our culture, really history in general and church history in particular are really not uh, studied. They're largely neglected. Part of the reason for that, I think, is we just get taught it in a way that's hard to take. Now, I had the blessing of having a lot of history instructors at all levels in high school and in college and in seminary who didn't just provide uh, names and dates without also providing context and showing the relevance of the events that we were, were studying. But a, a conservative philosophy that we talked about when we talked about politics, we talked about the difference between conservative, conservatism and progressivism. A conservative philosophy really demands an understanding of history because when you think about it, otherwise, what is it we are conserving? We can say we are conservatives, but if we don't know history, we really don't have a good solid idea of what it is we're conserving. But unfortunately, many who call themselves conservatives, perhaps owing to the tedious way that history is taught, don't have a sense of history. And so the only thing that we're conserving then is our standard of living right now. Now, history, I think, is less integral for a progressive because the idea is to move forward, to, to make progress, leave the past in the past. And so you see the difference in a slogan, 2016 presidential campaign slogan, Make America Great Again. Well, that was obviously very successful. It was very successful in part because it appealed to conservative people, people who are trying to conserve what's best out of, out of the past. We know that our past has not all been good, and we're having big discussions about that now in the culture. But for a conservative, that's appealing to preserve, conserve those things from the past. So uh, make America great again versus a progressive 
who isn't so concerned about that, but is concerned about, about moving ahead. But I think another reason we don't study history is honestly now, uh, there's an arrogance that says, I don't need to learn from those who have gone before. And that really should never be the case for Christians. You know, in scripture, we have a book, the book of Proverbs, and it regularly urges the current generation to listen to the wisdom of previous generations. And that has to be urged on each new generation because we're not naturally inclined to do that as sinners. Unfortunately, we think uh, we've got it all together. So that that is uh, a great reason. Those are, I should say, great reasons to learn history. And uh, I'm guessing there are even more than that. Yeah. You know, in that Reformation class that we did uh, a few years ago, I gave some other benefits, not just learning from the past, being prepared then for the present, because you've seen this before. But let me give you just a few other benefits of learning history. One is that it creates a sense of stability. One of the many dangers of our fast-paced society is the loss of moorings. Uh, things are just moving so quickly that it feels like the ground is shifting beneath us. And the result is a sort of make it up as we go approach that creates even more uncertainty about whether our untested methods, the horizons that we're moving toward, the kind of brave new world that we're moving toward, whether that's indeed best. So historical inquiry helps create a sense of stability. Also a recognition that our current blessings are in fact an inheritance from previous generations should create, rather than this arrogance I talked about earlier, it should create some humility within us. The mm -hmm. antidote, the answer to iconoclasm, iconoclasm is just destroying all the the icons, destroying all the, well, we're, we're seeing this now, uh, you know, statues. And I'm not taking right. a position on, you know, what statue should stay and which should go in this episode. Uh, but the idea that you just tear things down from the past, that, that really needs to be thought about. And that's what iconoclasm, and there have been iconoclasts uh, in every age, and history would help us to know that. The antidote to that and arrogance that comes with our individualistic culture is for us to realize we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And then finally, another benefit, in light of God's providential work in history, as you said earlier, from a Christian standpoint, history is his story. So God is working in all of the events of history. So we ought to come away from a study of history with a new, renewed sense of responsibility of stewardship before God, of managing our time and the events of our time, because God has placed us in this moment of history. And it's our awesome privilege, it's our awesome responsibility to then do it right, to handle our time correctly, and then pass the baton on to a next generation of believers. Okay, so hopefully that did the trick. And any of you who were thinking of hitting pause or stop and going over to YouTube, uh, or you're already on YouTube, what a dangerous place to put the episode. <laughs> you know, hopefully uh, those of you who might have been thinking, I don't know about a history lesson this Sunday morning, uh, have stuck with us. So with that, then let's talk specifically about the Crusades and the events related to them. So tell us, what were the Crusades? Well, what we know as what we call 
the Crusades, the Crusades. Those were a series of journeys to the Holy Land by Christian pilgrims and Christian soldiers. And as we'll see, these were not just soldiers, people conscripted into the military who happened to be Christians. No, these were soldiers who were going to battle because they were Christians. They were doing it in the name of Christ. So it was a series of journeys to the Holy Land by Christian pilgrims, Christian soldiers, and they had the goal of reclaiming the Holy Land, in particular, Jerusalem, and what was what is now Israel, and the lands in the Middle East that are of biblical significance. They were looking to reclaim those from rule by Muslims. By the time of the Crusades, which started in the late 11th century, so that would be the late 1000s, Muslims had ruled in Jerusalem for 400 years. Now I say the Crusades because these trips to the Holy Land and the battles that ensued are generally considered the Crusades, but although there were, there were eight Crusades to the Holy Land and four major ones to the Holy Land over several years, there were actually many, many other crusades over hundreds of years, hmm. even to other places. So the idea of military conquest by Christians was deeply rooted in the thinking of medieval Christians. Hmm. So, so how did that start? How did, hmm. uh, what prompted people to leave their homes and then to go do this in the Middle East? Well, these crusades to the Holy Land began with a sermon by the Pope. At the time, Pope Urban, Pope Urban II. And in November of 1095, November 1095, he convened a meeting of clerics, a meeting of cardinals and bishops, church officials in uh, North Southeast France. And they met for a number of days, but then toward the end of their meeting, he called a, uh, invited the public for him to give this sermon. And in an open field, this is what Christian History Magazine says about that speech, that sermon. It says, in an open field, Urban called upon the men of France to liberate Jerusalem, and in particular, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, to liberate it from the infidel Muslims. Now, many of you may know, many of our viewers may know what the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, but just in case, that's the spot in Jerusalem where traditionally it's said that Jesus was buried and from which he, he raised. So obviously a very important uh, uh, historical place. Now, Church History Magazine goes on to say this, when Urban finished, a great cry went up from the crowd. God wills it, God wills it. And immediately volunteers approached and they knelt before him. And to Urban's surprise, the Christian imagination had been seized. In the next few months, as he and others preached his message through France and Germany, dukes and counts, knights and foot soldiers, bishops and priests, and poor simple pilgrims, quote, took up the cross, literally sewing the emblem of the cross on their shirts as a sign of their vow to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And it would be a dangerous, Christian history says, it would be a, a dangerous 2,000 mile trek. Most had no idea what lay before them. They knew though what lay behind them. 
what a chronicler of one man leaving his wife said, he commended her to the Lord, kissed her lingeringly, and promised her as she, sw as she wept that he would return. But whether with families or without, whether gladly or sorrowfully, thousands ventured forth. That's what Christian History Magazine says about it. Now, I said there were multiple of these to different lands, eight to the Middle East, four major crusades over a couple of hundred years into Jerusalem, over a million pilgrims participated in the first crusade to the Middle East. And in that crusade, they actually did manage to capture Jerusalem, but it was later retaken by the Muslims. And then the subsequent seven crusades over those 200 years failed to, to take it again. Now get this, this is one of the saddest things in the history of Christianity. And that is one of those crusades was called the children's crusade because believe it or not, it involved children going to fight with the promise of eternal life for being martyred for what their parents believed was the cause of Christ. So many of the crusaders who, who went to, to fight did so on the promise of heaven if they were, they were martyred. Now we have a, a PDF of a, a whole issue from Christian History Magazine. They have made that available for free and we have that PDF and we can make that available, I think, Larry, right, to our, to our viewers? Yeah, we can do that. We'll put that in a link um, down below the episode, whether you're watching it on our webpage or on YouTube, you'll have a link there for it. Okay, good. So uh, basically what you're describing then is we've got a whole movement here initiated by um, this sermon from a pope and then goes on for hundreds of years as right. each subsequent pope then encourages it. Yeah, that's right. So sometimes it was encouragement by the popes. Other times it was an out-and-out command. Christians were commanded at times by the pope to go and fight on behalf of the church and on behalf of Christ. So th it's relevant, I think, here to talk about, you know, how did popes get such power um, to be able to demand that people do this, to promise they're going to have eternal life if they go, you know, their children go and do this? Maybe we should talk right. about that. Well, that all sounds really familiar, uh, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, we've heard a lot in, in our lifetimes about Muslim jihad and eternal reward for killing the infidels. Here you have it being done in the name of, of Christ. So how did the Pope acquire such just massive power that he could demand that people go and at least influence people to go and give their lives uh, in, a holy, in a holy war? So I'm going to try to cover, I mean, it's fascinating how that came to be, how the, the papacy has come to be. That's a fascinating study. Uh, I'm going to cover centuries of church history in a few minutes. So, you guys, you've so, got seven minutes. No, I'm just trying. <laughs> all right. So you've got a little go. more than that. <laughs> well, we know that you, you just read your Bible. You know that the first century church was persecuted. You read the book of Acts. We know that. You, If you know a little bit about history, then after the first century, after uh, the history recorded in the Bible of 2,000 years ago ends, of course, Christianity keeps going. And evangelists preaching the gospel and missionaries uh, go out and churches are established. But in the first few centuries of the church, 
the Christians were persecuted. We know about the Roman Empire's persecution. We know about the catacombs. Uh, we know about the secret symbols that Christian would have. Christians would have to identify one another. The ichthus uh, symbol, the Greek word for fish, and so that's why they have a fish. And ichthus was a, an acronym for you know uh, for Jesus uh, Christus. Um, so it's Jesus uh, Theos, and uh, Ye no Jesus Christos Theos Quios. <laughs> And then mm. Soter. So it's Jesus Christ, God's Son, uh, our Savior. Mm -hmm. And that's what Ichthus stood for. And so fish is a perfect symbol for that. But, you know, they would put that on the sides. We have uh, archaeologists who have found those. You see them on the back of your bumper. Uh, I was going to say, now you know bumpers. if you have that on your bumper what that stands for. <laughs> you know what it stands for, right. So you've got early church persecution over the first few centuries. But then in the year 305, 305, the Roman Emperor Diocletian, uh, he steps down and four of his subordinates now vie for supremacy. Uh, in history, it's amazing how many times you find this, that succession mm. uh, of a leader who has passed and moved on uh, causes issues. But anyway, there was this battle between these four subordinates. Two of them had an actual military battle in the year 312 uh, Constantine and Maxentius, but Constantine was victorious. And you you can read about the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312. Constantine is victorious. But Constantine told the story of having seen in the sky, while he was engaged in the battle, the sign of the cross and the words, in this sign, conquer. And so he attributed his victory to Christ as a result of this vision that he believed that he, he had. And as a result of that, the following year, in the year 313, a very famous document in history was signed called the Edict of Milan, and that made Christianity a legal religion. Now, sometimes people say that the Edict of Milan made Christianity the favored religion. It did not. It made it a legal religion. It had been an illegal religion and Christians were persecuted, but now it's legal. And not only that, but Constantine believed himself to be a Christian. And he began to attend church, but he also began to adapt worship in Rome to the pomp and circumstance of the imperial court. Caves and no so, longer. And, and right, that's right. We're out of the caves, out of the catacombs, into the castle, you know, and mm -hmm. So uh, you wonder a lot of times when you see at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and you see all of the headdress and all of the pomp and where did all of that come from? It goes back to this time. So throughout the 300s, throughout the, the fourth century, all of that is developing. By the time you get to the end of the fourth century, now Christianity is the favored religion of the empire. Not just legal, but by the end of the 300s, it is the favored religion religion of the empire. But during that time, during the fourth century in 330, the year 330, Constantine moved the capital of the empire from Rome east to Constantinople. He named it. It wasn't already named <laughs> Constantinople. <laughs> in all humility, he named it after himself. Picked up and... a lot of humility from his conversion. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So, you know, what is now Istanbul, Turkey, uh, Constantinople. But that move by the emperor to the east left a vacuum in the west, left a vacuum in Rome. And many historians point out that the bishop of Rome then became the most powerful individual in, in Rome. And the bishop of Rome would later take up the title pope from Latin for Papa, Father. He negotiated treaties. He acted as a political leader in addition to being a religious leader. Even though Rome, as the empire fell in the year 476, uh, the power of the Bishop of Rome increased. And with Pope Gregory, in who became Pope in 590, 590, you really have what I would consider to be the first full-fledged Pope in the sense that we know the popes today. So Peter, contrary to what Roman Catholicism says, you know, the apostle Peter was not the first pope. You didn't have the papacy in the first several hundred years of the church, but it did develop over time for reasons related to what I'm saying here. Pope Gregory is the first really full-fledged pope in the sense that we would know it today. So the Vatican is both uh, religious and political, even to this day. Vatican City is its own government. It has ambassadors to Vatican City from all over the world. The United States of America has an ambassador to the Vatican. Newt Gingrich's wife, Callista, is the ambassador of the United States right now to the, the Vatican. The power of the Pope throughout the Western world was increased though during these during the Middle Ages, immeasurably, it was increased immeasurably by uh, what's conceded by everyone. Even Roman Catholic scholars concede that this document called the Donation of Constantine was a forgery. The Donation of Constantine. Now, we already mentioned Constantine. He's the one who gave the Edict of Milan. He's the one who became a Christian himself. He's the one who, by the end of the fourth century, uh, uh, Christianity becomes the favored religion of the empire. Uh, but this document called the Donation of Constantine started floating around in the 700s, in the 8th century, the 700s. And it was supposed to be a grant from Constantine to the Roman Catholic Church, in particular to the Roman Pope, the Roman Bishop, uh, for him to have authority over Rome and the western part of the Roman Empire, all given to the Bishop of Rome. Now that was later discovered to have been written in the 700s, centuries after the death of Constantine. But it wasn't proven to be a forgery until the 1400s. And so that means for 700 years, you have this false notion prevailing that amassed unbelievable power and wealth to the Pope and to the Roman Catholic church. Just as an example of how much power had amassed, there was an event on Christmas Day, December 25th, 800 AD, 800 AD. And Charlemagne is going to be crowned the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne. So Charlemagne is Charles the Magnificent, Charlemagne. And he's going to be crowned as the emperor. Here's what a history book called Turning Points. I think we have this in our resource center. Unfortunately, nobody can visit our resource center these days. Uh, but if you want to order it, 
uh, on Amazon. It's called Turning Points, and the author is Mark Knoll, N-O-L-L, Turning Points, Mark Knoll. And he says this about that event. He says, Charlemagne's coronation was a dramatic symbol of relationships undergoing permanent change. It stood for a new form of Christian existence that was replacing the Christianity passed on from the time of Constantine. This event anticipated the future for the way that the great King Charles and the Pope as supreme head of the Western church conducted their business on that fateful day on Christmas 800. It outlined the shape of Christian life in the West for at least the next seven or eight centuries. Now, what was that? How did they conduct their business? Here's what was so important about that event. Charlemagne was crowned by the Pope. The Pope is the one who hmm. conferred power upon the Holy Roman em Emperor. And that idea that the Pope had both not just religious power, but also political power. And if you didn't have the blessing of the Pope, then you couldn't rule. And that was seen in, 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 in a stark way in the coronation of Charlemagne by the Pope on December 25th of 800. So by the year 1095, and you have Pope Urban II now, and he gives this sermon in France, and he says the Holy Land needs to be taken back from the, the infidels. The Pope by that time has amassed unfathomable power in both the political and religious realms, and he can encourage and even command that the Crusades take place. I'm, uh, as I listen to you go through that, I'm having flashbacks from history of civilization going, that's why that was important. <laughs> I uh, recently have been reading a little bit of this, but that was a lot of detail that I didn't get, and even the, the reading I've been doing, and I'm sure our viewers, that, that was a good, helpful new information for many of them. So just to wrap up, then let's talk about briefly, uh, what are some things that we can learn from this mm. today, then? What are some applications we can make? Yeah. Yeah, and that's the way to do history. You know, let's uh, look at what happened and then let's say, okay, what does that mean? Remember at the very beginning I was talking about, let's learn from, from history. So let's learn for it now. And the Crusades are one of the great blights on the history of, of Christianity. Now, we can rightly say that that's not really Christianity to get involved in military campaigns in the name of Christ. And of course, that's true. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then would my servants fight. Indeed, his kingdom is coming, is coming to this world, but this present order is not it, is not the kingdom, and it will not, the kingdom will not come until he does come. So as we go back to the beginning of our discussion, the underlying motivations for what led to the Crusades, I said, are still with us, and they still affect us. Namely, we have an inordinate focus on temporal matters, on the here and now. So think about it, friends, right now. Do you think we are in a temporal here and now war? If we do, then it explains why we're willing to compromise our values in order to win. Hmm. Like we've talked about the last couple of weeks in the whole Christians and politics discussion. If it's a temporal war, but we think the spiritual stakes are so high in this here and now, temporal war, if we think that, then we have to fight. And if that means fighting dirty or having people represent our interests who are morally compromised and are perfectly willing to fight dirty, then so be it, because this is 
war. That's what we tend to think. If you've come to believe you're in a war temporally right now and the cause is just, then it's no surprise we're going to conclude that we need to do whatever's necessary to win. I, I interacted with a good, very good Christian friend, someone for whom I have great respect, not someone in our church, someone outside of our church. Um, I have great respect for everybody in our church and, and, and some people outside of our church. And this was one of them. And um, we were debating, he and I, about Christian folks' approach to politics today. And he said this, I'm quoting in an email. He said, we're in a war for the very survival of America. Now, that's for, that's for a Christian who believes we're in, he says, we're in a war. That's his mentality. I just saw uh, the other day a Biden ad. And that Biden ad said, quote, we're in a battle for the soul of this nation, a battle we can win. So it's not just one side who talks in these military terms. But what I care about is one side of it. I care about the Christian side of it. I care about the people in our church and how we view what we're doing and where we are and whether or not our focus is here and now on temporal matters. It's very telling that people talk in this way, that this Christian friend of mine says, we're in a war for the survival of America. Mm -hmm. Hear this, friends. I am not in a war for anything, for anything except the warfare talked about in Ephesians chapter 6 in our Bibles. Amen. That's the war that I'm involved in. That's the war we're to be involved in. That's a war between Christ and Satan. And the Bible makes absolutely clear that the weapons of our warfare are not military and they are not political. Hmm. Now listen, if you're attacked physically, and we've seen you know things on our television screens with protests that turn into riots and, and get violent and all of that, and that, that can be scary. I understand that for all of us. If you're attacked physically, then we as a nation, if, if our nation is attacked from the outside, uh, then we have the right and responsibility to defend it. If you're personally attacked physically, we have the right and the responsibility, just as human beings, to defend ourselves, to defend our loved ones. But until then, until you're attacked and you defend yourself physically, until then, what we should do is vote if we can. But then we remember our battle is not against flesh and blood. And our weapons are not those of the world. And I think that's what we can learn from things like the Crusades. Granted, an extreme example of people going and actually taking up arms and all of that. But you listen to the rhetoric today, and we're not terribly far off from that, I'm afraid to say. The way even many Christian people talk. Friends, we're not battling for the survival of America as Christians. As Christians, we're battling on Christ's behalf against Satan with the spiritual armaments that he has supplied from his word. Let's remember that. And if we do that, we can learn the lesson from history. That's great. So if you have uh, questions that you'd like to uh, give us to consider on the, on the uh, uh, a future episode, then you can send those in a couple ways. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, you can text them to us at 97,000 
or you can in, uh, email them to us at info at cbctrenton.com. And uh, we'd love to uh, hear from you. Let us know what you think of these episodes, if you have ideas for future episodes. And um, Pastor Ken, thanks for putting in the time to go through this with us. And I know you've, yeah. you've uh, put pleasure. in some time studying this to, to help us understand it better. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you in the next one. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com or text it to us at 97000.